to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1271. A few weeks before the pandemic started a few years ago, I began uh, preaching through the book of Titus. And once the pandemic hit, I stopped and switched gears. And uh, we as a church have been through a lot over the last few years. And many things have changed. And I felt it was appropriate and a good time to go back and uh, begin this book. So I'm starting from scratch again uh, in the book of Titus. And we're going to be studying that for a little while. And we're going to begin in Titus chapter 1 this morning in verse 1. And I want to speak for a few minutes today on this subject, devotion, doctrine, and discipleship. Titus chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. And this is what the Word of God says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The first four verses of this letter comprise one long, involved, and poignant sentence. The greeting is somewhat more formal than those in either letter to Timothy. But the purpose of all three letters was much the same, to encourage and strengthen a young pastor who had succeeded the Apostle Paul in a difficult place of ministry. Paul had spent much less time in founding and establishing the churches on the island of Crete than he had spent in founding the church in Ephesus. And as a result... It was important for the believers in Crete to understand that Titus was not operating on his own, but was ministering with the delegated authority of the Apostle Paul. Titus was Paul's protege. He was an ambassador of the Apostle, and he was sent to Crete to strengthen the churches for effective ministry in the midst of a pagan culture. And so if anyone attacked the authority and teaching of Titus, they would, in essence, be attacking the authority and the teaching of the Apostle Paul that was given to him by Jesus Christ. Between the first word of this epistle and the name of the recipient, Paul sandwiches a wealth of historical and doctrinal information. This lengthy opening establishes the framework for the entire letter, and it expresses Paul's main concerns for writing. The book of Titus is full of tremendous teaching that is just as relevant for the church today as it was for the church in Crete. 
For we too need to hear Paul's exhortations about the careful selection and appointment of church elders, about the damaging effects of false teaching, about the importance of helping different groups relate duty to doctrine, about the transforming power of the two appearings of Christ, about the civic and social responsibilities of the people of God, and about the practical implications of God's work of salvation in our lives. We could consider the theme of this short three-chapter, 46-verse letter, God's Blueprint for a Healthy Church. And Paul begins his letter by expressing his devotion, emphasizing doctrine, and encouraging discipleship. And this morning... All we're going to think about is devotion. And so if you will look in verse 1, in the beginning of verse 2, Paul describes his devotion. And he begins by giving his position in ministry in verse number 1. And he writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so at the very outset of this letter, Paul describes himself as a servant of God. The word servant is the word doulos. It literally translates slave. And it describes a person who not only serves a master, but is also owned by the master. And so Paul is testifying and saying of himself that he is a slave of God. He is someone who has been bought and paid for by the blood of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in describing himself as a servant, Paul was saying that his first allegiance was not to himself. His first allegiance was not even to the church. His first allegiance was to God, the one who had chosen and called him and placed him in service and in ministry. And as a servant of God, Paul was in complete and willing surrender and submission to God. Paul, as a servant, had no life that he called his own. He had no will of his own. He had no purpose of his own. He had no plan of his own. Paul's life was completely revolved around his service and his submission and his surrender to God. And earlier, when he was writing to the believers in Corinth, he reminded them and us that this description, servant of God, should be true of every single Christian. And this is what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might not might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, that they might not any longer live for themselves. That's what it means to be a servant of God. You're not living for you. You are living for him. And you're living for him because he set you free from your sin and from yourself so you could surrender and submit to him. But you'll notice in verse 1 that Paul's service to God was directly related to his apostleship. 
And when he, re, when he uses the word apostle, it's referring to the 12 apostles, the disciples who were the eyewitnesses of the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible also refers to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as an apostle who was placed in that office by the Lord Jesus Christ himself after Paul encountered him on the road to Damascus. And what you and I need to understand this morning, friends, is that the apostles were a small and exclusive group of men. They were specially chosen. They were uniquely gifted. They were awesomely empowered. And they were divinely sent to establish God's church. And this office was never to be repeated again. So there are no apostles today. Now this word apostle literally means one who is sent. It carries the basic meaning of being a messenger. Someone who is sent with a specific message on behalf of someone else. And this messenger was given the authority of the one who sent him. And so you see in the text that as an apostle, Paul speaks and writes with the full authority of Jesus Christ behind him as he addresses the church in Crete. And what I want you to understand this morning is that much like the word servant or the phrase servant of God, the meaning of apostle not only applies to Paul, it applies to every believer. For at the heart of our identity as Christians is the divine commission that sends us out into the world as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ this morning, you have been given a divine message contained in the Word of God. And you have been given the authority and the power to share and proclaim this message wherever you go. And so Paul's position in ministry as a servant of God was one of humility. His position in ministry as an apostle was one of authority. And his humility and his authority gave him a tremendous burden of responsibility for this church. And it was from this position of ministry that Paul gave the instructions in this letter to Titus and to us. John MacArthur comments about this burden of responsibility for faithful pastoral ministry and this is what he writes all effective fruitful and genuinely spiritual leaders in Christ's church have a deep awareness that they are under divine authority and that awareness becomes the controlling reality of their lives they do not seek to fulfill personal agendas create personal fame or build personal empires did you hear that the church needs to hear this there's only one celebrity in the church. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And a faithful pastor is content and feels honored for the privilege of being wholly subject to the master who has chosen them and sent them, end quote. Paul's position of ministry, one of service, one of delegated authority. But he moves in the middle of verse 1 to the beginning of verse 2, to talk about his purpose in ministry. And I want you to notice the text carefully. He gives three purposes 
for his ministry. And that's what we'll spend the rest of our time on this morning. And I want you to keep your Bible open and I want you to pay careful attention because I'm lifting these truths straight from Scripture. And I will say to you at the outset, if you have a problem with what I'm about to show you, your problem is with the Bible and not with me. Just so we're clear. The first purpose in his ministry is the faith of God's elect. He says that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And in this verse, Paul employs a descriptive term that emphasizes God's sovereign work of salvation known theologically as election. And this doctrine emphasizes the fact that God, for his own pleasure and his own will, has chosen a people for himself. And he refers to them as his elect ones. And Paul says that these elect ones are chosen in love before the foundation of the world to be God's own special possession according to his sovereign perfect will. And this is what he writes about that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God's sovereign election constitutes a basic element in the doctrine of salvation. And although this doctrine contains mysteries beyond human understanding, election is biblically emphasized as a central part of God's dealing with his people. It is clearly evident in the Old Testament in his choice of the nation Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, this is what Moses writes. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God chose Israel, Moses says, because God wanted to choose Israel. And that's it. But the doctrine of election is also clearly evident in the New Testament. In God's choice of his church. And Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now here's what I want you to understand this morning. That Paul specifically taught throughout all of his epistles, all of them, that God is the source, 
God is the initiator. God is the implementer. And God is the guarantee of our salvation. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the New Testament book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verses 1 through 3, listen carefully to me this morning, church. What I'm about to read to you describes every single person who's ever been born in this world and doesn't know Christ as their Savior. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And in these three verses, Paul says that without Christ, we're lifeless, that we are spiritually dead. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. And my question for you this morning is, how dead is dead? Are you 90% dead and 10% spiritually alive? Or are you 99% dead and 1% spiritually alive? Or are you, as Paul says in this passage, spiritually dead 100%? And I would say to you this morning that Paul says that you are spiritually dead 100%. That you neither desire or possess the ability to change the direction of your life. That when you don't know Christ as your Savior and you're spiritually dead and someone stands up in front of you and shares the Word of God or proclaims the Word of God to you like I am doing this morning, it's like preaching to a corpse. You're dead. To help you think about it, we don't have to use our imagination too much. We could just look out the window and think about the cemetery next door. And we could go over to that cemetery and we could take the Word of God and we could begin proclaiming to all of those corpses in the ground and say, change the direction of your life. Change the station in your life. Just do better. Just work harder. And what would happen? They're all still in the ground. They can't change their position. They have no ability in them to change their position. They cannot improve their life situation. No matter how hard I would preach to them, no matter how hard you would preach to them, they cannot change. And that's the same for you and me. You and I are so spiritually dead, we cannot change the situation in our life on our own. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We follow the course of the world. We follow the devil. That's what Paul says. Well, where's the good news in that? Oh, well, you have to read further, you see. And you go to Ephesians chapter 2, and you begin reading in verses 4 and 5, and this is what you find. And listen to the first two words I'm going to read to you. But God. Now, you'll notice it didn't say but you. It didn't say but man. It said, but God, being rich in mercy 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, listen, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And Paul says that even though that you are 100% spiritually dead and have no ability or desire to change the station in your life, God, who is rich in mercy and love, makes you alive in Jesus Christ. It means that he calls you and he breathes life into your spiritually dead body through his spirit. And he gives you the desire and the ability to respond to his word. And that's why he would say in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. You're saved. By grace, through faith, you don't deserve to be saved. That's why it's a gift of God's grace. You can't be saved without the gift of faith given to you by God. Because, remember, you're spiritually dead. You have no ability to believe. You have no ability to respond. God makes you alive. And friends, for every person who is a believer in Christ, there are two words written above their life. But God. But God. And in a world that is filled with being your best self and it's filled with self and it's filled with promoting yourself and making a platform for yourself and just uh, work harder and do and do and do you hate but God but I would submit to you this morning that those are two of the best words you could ever hear in your life but God makes you alive in Jesus Christ and you say well pastor how do I know that I'm a Christian it's simple did you believe? Did you confess? Did you repent? Did you receive? Then you're a Christian. Because you couldn't have done that unless God moved on your life. You have no ability. Did you know that this doctrine is not exclusive to the Apostle Paul? Jesus taught this doctrine. Other New Testament writers taught this doctrine. In his Bread of Life discourse, Christ not only said that believers are chosen by God, but that believers are eternally safe in him. In John chapter 6, verses 37 to 39, he said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He'll lose nothing that the Father has given him. Eternally secure. In the book of Acts, Luke describes the Gentiles' response to the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 13, 48, Luke says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? The ones who God called to eternal life. Every one of them believed. Still not convinced? 
in the very last book of your Bible, John describes in Revelation chapter 13 his vision of the world's worship of the beast at the end of time. And he says that the whole world will worship this beast except for those who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, he says this, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Before Genesis 1-1, all the way to the book of Revelation, the Bible has one theme, that God chooses a people for himself. He gives them to his son. His son dies for them. His son receives them, and the Holy Spirit births them into the kingdom of heaven and keeps them saved to the very end. But God. Now, it's also true that there is a parallel line of thinking in Scripture because as I've already mentioned to you, the Bible clearly teaches that for you to be saved from your sin, you must repent, you must believe, you must confess, and you must receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And I could give you scripture after scripture after scripture that shows you. I'm going to give you two. Luke 13, 3. Jesus said, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Unless you repent. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to Christ. It is going in the opposite direction of your life of sin. That is repentance. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, you'll perish forever, for all eternity. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul said this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You must repent. You must believe. You must confess. But you can't repent, you can't believe, and you can't confess until God makes you alive in his son, Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how, how do I know that I can be made alive? Well, you've heard the gospel preached to you this morning, friend. You've heard that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You heard that God was rich in mercy and love, and he sent his son to die for you so that your sins could be forgiven and so that you could be saved and that it is all of grace. You can't work to earn it or do anything for it. It must be received as a gift of God's grace and that God must give you the faith to believe. And if you're here in your trespasses and sins and your spiritual deadness and you say, I want to know Christ, I want to be saved, I say to you, believe, receive, confess, and repent. And if you have the desire to do that, and if you have the ability to turn from your sin and to confess Jesus and believe on him and receive him, then I say to you that God has saved you. It's both. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon, Jacob and Esau, he married these two lines of thought together beautifully. And this is what he said. He saves man by grace, and if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. How, says someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines, God's election and your response? My dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends, never. 
These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. He's exactly right. You will drive yourself mad if you try to reconcile them. Believe both of them. Believe both of them. That's why Paul, towards the end of his letter to the Romans, as he was thinking about God's electing and saving and gracious work, this is all he can say in praise and worship to God in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Oh, God's wisdom, God's plan of salvation, it is deep. It is wise. It is rich. Believe it and praise him for it. But God... Spurgeon goes on and he says, A sign above the door to heaven boldly proclaims, Whosoever will may come. However, once through heaven's gates, an astute observer will notice that the flip side of the sign says, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's both. The doctrine of election is best and possibly only understood within the context of our own experience of salvation as believers. Isn't it true when you reflect on where God found you if you're a Christian and how he saved you, all you can attribute it to is God? And God had to do that for you to be saved. I, I quote Spurgeon one final time. He said, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. Amen. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. Amen. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept this biblical doctrine. Oh, friends, if, if you think you deserve it, you've missed the whole point. It's not grace if you deserve it. The doctrine of election leaves no room for your pride. The doctrine of election crushes you. It humbles you. Your only response to the truth of this word of God is to cry out in dependence, begging for mercy and grace from God to save your spiritually dead soul. And when you grasp this doctrine, it is comforting. There is security. And there is confidence in it. Because if it all originated with God, you can never do anything to lose it, can you? Now, Paul's ministry as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ was for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Do you know why I think he said that at the beginning? Because he could say everything that he said with confidence and boldness and certainty because God has a people for himself from before the foundation of the world and God will take his word from his servant and he will use it to claim his people and to build his church and to build his people. And see, when you don't believe that, you think it all depends on you and you think you got to entertain 
and you think you got to do this, and you think you got to do that. And Paul says at the outset, nope, if you want to have a church that is healthy, you stand up, and you preach, and you minister, and you serve God for the sake of the faith of the people that belong to God. And if you're not a part of a church that doesn't take the faith of its people seriously and give the people what they need, you are in a wrong church. That was free. Now, I told you there were three reasons, three purposes. That was just the first one, the sake of their faith. They'll come quicker now. The second one at the end of verse 1 is the knowledge of the truth in God's elect. He says, in their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul not only wanted to see the elect come to faith in Christ, he wanted to see them grow in their faith because a growing faith is one of the keys to Christian youthfulness, usefulness and happiness and holiness. He uses the word knowledge, which refers to a clear understanding of the truth. And notice how he describes it, knowledge of the truth. It's exclusive. It emphasizes a defined body of teaching. Jesus described the truth this way in John 17 and verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now you'll notice in the text that knowledge must not be an end in itself. It must lead to godliness. And this phrase, godliness, is a constant emphasis in the pastoral epistles. I, you mark it through there, and you'll find it repeated over and over in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. It literally refers to God-likeness, a moral likeness to the revealed character of God in His qualities such as holiness and justice and goodness and truth. It's an everyday way of living that displays our devotion to God. Godliness is the natural result of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is sure proof and evidence that the truth of God has come into your life. And what I want you to see this morning is that this connection between the knowledge of the truth and godliness needed to be emphasized in Crete. Because Crete was a pagan immoral culture. And as we're going to see in a few weeks in verses 10 to 16, there was false teaching that was rampant in the church. And it was connected to ungodly living. And that's why I say to you this morning, any doctrine, any teaching, any preacher that does not promote godliness is false. It's a false doctrine. It's a false teaching. It is a false preacher. True teaching, true doctrine is always connected to godliness. Because what we believe should always affect how we live. And how we live should always be demonstrated by what we believe. In essence, godliness proves your election. Godliness proves your salvation. He'll say this in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. When Christ comes into your life, your life changes. Paul says, the old has gone away, the new has come. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. It means you should have new loves, new affections, new desires. You, you want to get rid of worldly passions. You want to get rid of ungodliness. You want to become more self-controlled. You have a desire to be more upright. You have a desire to pursue holiness and godliness. That is a result of the work of salvation in your life. Friends, that's how you know You've been changed by God's grace. You have a desire to be godly. You have a desire to grow in godliness. Peter, in both 1 Peter and 2 Peter, uh, emphasizes this reality over and over again. And he says uh, repeatedly in 1 and 2 Peter that when you know the gospel, when you've been changed by Jesus Christ, godliness comes with that. And you have a desire for it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know what Peter says? Peter says, if you've tasted the goodness of God and the grace of God, You'll have a desire to grow up in the Word of God. You'll have a desire to put away worldly things and ungodly things. You'll have a desire and a hunger for the Word and for the things of God. And you'll begin to grow in maturity. You'll no longer be an infant in your faith. You'll be growing to maturity in your faith. And that's how you become godly. And godliness is always connected to election and to salvation. But he's not finished. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, he says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. Did you hear that? His divine power has given you everything you need for life and for godliness when he saves you. 2 Peter 3.18, he says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So once you become a Christian, once you become one of God's elect you begin to gain knowledge in the truth. And as you grow in your knowledge of the truth, your growth in knowledge and your growth in your faith will ultimately lead to your godliness. And your life will become more and more pleasing to God. Your life will be more centered upon God. Your life will be more useful to God. Your life will be more honoring to God. True saving faith, friends, opens one's eyes to the knowledge of the truth and it always transforms them into godliness. That's how you know you're a true Christian. So he serves for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He serves for the knowledge of the truth of God's elect and their godliness. And finally, at the beginning of verse 2, he serves for the hope of God's elect in hope of eternal life he says at the beginning of verse 2 the truth of the gospel that Paul proclaimed brings hope and Paul identified this hope as eternal life did you know that hope in the Bible always refers to something that is certain it is 
confident certainty and expectation of something that is not yours, but one day will be eternal life. Confident certainty that you have eternal life. And this eternal life is the very life of God. It is both quantity of life, lasting forever, and it is quality of life, Christ in you. He is the hope of glory. And Paul wanted the churches in Crete to know what you and I need to remember, that our only hope is in Jesus Christ and that we're to live according to this hope. That's why he says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's why he says in Titus chapter 3 and verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see it, friends? Hope in chapter 1. Hope in chapter 2. Hope in chapter 3. If you belong to God, you're growing in the knowledge of the truth, and it's leading to godliness, it should ultimately give you hope for the future, no matter what is going on. And I want to remind you this morning that in a world where the future is uncertain and where death could happen for any of us at any moment, the promise of eternal life is the anchor for your soul. You want to be anchored in this life? You need the hope of eternal life. That is your anchor. And you will only find that hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't conjure it up. You can't make it happen in your life. It's not dependent upon your thoughts. It's not dependent upon your moods. This hope originates from God himself. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Friends, I don't have hope this morning because of anything that I've done or anything that I can set claim to. I have lasting hope and peace this morning no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in my life because I've been born again to a living hope through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the only anchor that you have for your soul. The hope of Christ. And when you have this hope, it will help you endure in life. And it will help you endure in ministry. Can't you see it? Can't you see it in your Bible this morning? The context in which Paul is ministering? Look at the bookends of verses 1 and 2. Can you see it? Where did he begin? Where does he minister from eternity past before the foundation of the world? God has chosen a people for himself. And where does his ministry end in eternity future with the hope of eternal life? Paul is ministering in the context 
of eternity. Paul lived in the context of eternity. The churches of Crete lived in the context of eternity. You live in the context of eternity. This church ministers in the context of eternity. It's from eternity past to eternity future. And it is all of God. Do you see the progression? Paul submitted his life to God for the salvation of souls, for the sanctification of those souls, and for the glorification of those souls. So what are we to do with this? Well, let me begin by addressing those in church leadership. Do you have the same vision and ambition as the Apostle Paul, brothers? Namely, to cultivate the people under your care in faith, in ways that lay hold of God and of Christ. To cultivate the knowledge of truth that leads to their godliness. To cultivate the hope of eternal life in them. If you do, are you willing to lose your life in service to that end? If you're a Christian, can you honestly say this morning that you are growing in your knowledge of God's truth and that this growth in truth is producing godliness in your life? Do you have a deeper love for God and for Christ and for His church and for His Word than you did a year ago? Can you honestly say this morning, Christian, that you desire godliness? Or are you rationalizing and compartmentalizing the actions in your life? Can you say today that your faith in Christ is causing you to live with hope in the midst of the darkness of this world? Is your faith causing you to serve knowing that you are touching eternity? And is it causing you to embrace hardship knowing that something far better awaits you at the end of this life. If you're a non-Christian today, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you see the depths that God has gone to in order for you to be rescued from your sin and rescued from your shame and rescued from your guilt? Not only has He set His love and affection upon you, but He has demonstrated that love for you by sending His beloved Son to bear your punishment for your sin so that you could be healed and you could be forgiven and you could be restored. And if that were not enough, in His sovereign grace, He's divinely appointed you to be in this room at this very hour to hear this very word proclaimed to you. Unbeliever, non-Christian, would you turn from your sin in repentance and trust Christ as your Savior? Would you believe in your heart today 
that Christ died for you? Would you confess your sins this very moment and your need for Him? Would you cry out in dependence and ask this loving, merciful, gracious, steadfast God to save you? Oh, church, with this one word, devotion, be the reality in every single one of our lives. Let's pray.